streaming on Paramount Plus. You ready, Bob? Well, all right. Audiences are raving. Bob Marley is electrifying. It's the feel-good movie of the year. You dig? Bob Marley, One Love. Rated PG-13. Now streaming on Paramount Plus. Welcome in. Like Kick is live. It is Sunday night. It is May 3rd, the year of our Lord, 2020. We are very happy to have you with us. Believe it or not, here we are in the middle of May, quarantine season, no football season. But uh, judging by the stack of papers in front of me, we do have a jam-packed show. If you're watching on the YouTube channel and you haven't already, subscribe and do me a favor and click the thumbs up. Give us a like. Get us trending in that uh, YouTube live section. Also, uh, if you're listening maybe later in the week on the Late Kick podcast, thank you for listening there. If you guys haven't already, I told you we're doing a bonus podcast every week, Late Kick Extra, and we do that on Wednesday. That's when that drops. Fancy word for gets released. So if you haven't already, and a lot of you have, so those the few of you out there who haven't yet, those five-star reviews and the written reviews on the podcast, really, really, really a big help. We've got a lot to get to tonight. I have got, I don't think it's a very well-kept secret anymore, so I'll just tell you. I interviewed Urban Meyer for about 25, 30 minutes Friday, and we are going to play you a little clip of that. Had a really good talk with him. I'm not, this wasn't some garden variety, standard coach speak style answers. He gave some really good in-depth stuff. I clipped a little bit of it, and Colin's going to roll it for you a little bit later tonight. Also, I'm going to leave the show in just a second with some Ohio State, a little bit different angle, but also... A lot of you have asked me, hey, what happened to all the stories? You were telling stories every show. Whatever happened to them? Did you run out? No, I didn't run out. We just had some other stuff to get to. But tonight, we had a nice opening where I said, there's room for another story tonight. One of those all-access stories. For those of you who aren't familiar, just some observations that I've made going to games and whatnot. Some maybe behind-the-scenes stuff that you couldn't have been privy to if you were just watching in the stands or on TV. And I'm going to give you one about the national championship game for the 2016 season. It was Bama versus Clemson part two. It was the game they played in Tampa. It was the Hunter Renfro, depending on your perspective, pick game or just critical touchdown with one second left in the go game. Again, all depends on your perspective, but we had a good perspective after the game. So I'm gonna share that with you tonight. And also we're gonna hit some inbox. I got a very interesting couple of questions on top of what we're gonna get to later in the week. And before I get into this and I forget, if you are on the YouTube channel, if you're watching the video, if you'll look down below the video, there is a comment section, obviously. And I always pin a comment at the very top. It's just me telling you to subscribe to the channel, click the bell for notifications. Well, also, I included this week, starting this week, anybody who has questions for the Late Kick Extra podcast and you want them included, because I get to as many of them as I can, just reply to that comment. It's right below the video here. You can't miss it. And that's where you can post those questions. That's where I'm going to go. That's the reservoir for all the questions for the podcast. You can also tweet them at me or email them to me. And Colin has the information on how to do that at the bottom of the screen. If you're listening on the regular Late Kick podcast, at Late Kick Josh and joshpate706 at gmail.com. <clears throat> Way too much talking. Let's get started here. Ohio State's about to force a whole lot of change in college football. Ohio State's about to force a whole lot of change in the Big Ten. And I think that a lot of it's going to be for good, but yet they're going to have to possibly destroy a lot of things along the way for you to see it. So for those of you who are not familiar, Ohio State and Ryan Day are just crushing it in recruiting. And I have always, I've always maintained, whether it be Clemson in the ACC, Alabama in the 
SEC, Big Ten, Ohio State right now, Oklahoma in the Big 12 has been doing a lot of really, really solid work there. They've been the best program in that conference for a little while. But no matter where we're looking, and we're talking about Ohio State right now, a philosophy that is proven right time and time again is the sport does not just sit still. It may look like it is because you can't see things moving at a 50,000-foot perspective all the time when you're just at ground level. The sport doesn't just sit still. So Ohio State's run a rush out over everyone on the field and in recruiting in the Big Ten right now. And I'm not telling you that that's about to change by the year 2022. What I am telling you is whether it's Michigan, whether it's Penn State, and those are really the two that I've focused most of my attention for this little segment on. Something's going to happen. It's not always that it's going to yield positive results, but change is going to happen by default. Now, here's what I'm talking about, okay? Domination leads to innovation in a lot of cases. Sometimes you got to get dominated before you innovate, and that's the not-so-fun part of it, but domination could lead to innovation. And if you'll notice, sometimes you have the 1%. And people who are of the 1% mentality, they don't need a foe to chase. Uh, They don't need a giant to slay. They're self-motivated. They have a standard that they work towards, independent of whatever's going on around them. But that's not how 99% operate. And here's the unfortunate part. A football program cannot be made up entirely of 1%ers. You may have a coach like Ryan Day, for example, Nick Saban. uh, We're going to talk to Urban Meyer later tonight. He's one of those. Your coach probably is a one percenter if he's had any success, but maybe not all your boosters are. Maybe not all the folks in your administration and athletic department are. So those people need a giant to chase. They need a foe to try and slay. And that's what lights a fire under them. Well, in the Big Ten's case right now, Michigan's getting their tail kicked routinely on the trail and on the field by Ohio State. Penn State, while they've been competitive, kind of the same deal right now. And Ohio State's, it's not unique to them. They're doing it to most of the Big Ten. Uh, This happened in the SEC for a while with Urban Meyer in Florida. Steve Spurrier in Florida did this a couple of generations ago. Nick Saban in Alabama have done this. And so what happens? That's the question. What does it cause you to do? Because it lights that fire. And a lot of times that at the time domination leads to anger. It can lead to action and it can lead to improvement. So this has happened elsewhere, okay? This is the blueprint. If you're a Michigan fan, if you're a Penn State fan, if you're a fan of anyone not Ohio State in the Big Ten, if you're a fan of anyone not Oklahoma in the Big 12, answers have already started to be made in the SEC. That's why I'm not singling out Alabama because an SEC West team just won a national championship. They don't reside in Tuscaloosa. Uh, There's one that's doing really good in Athens, Georgia right now. Uh, There is a sign of life out of Knoxville, Tennessee. More on that later in the show. But let's talk about this, because I'll make you a crazy prediction. I think flat out, Ryan Day is going to win someone else a national championship in the Big Ten. I don't think it's going to happen until maybe like 2027 or 28, but I'm telling you, there are seeds being planted right now. Could be in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Could be in Happy Valley. It could be elsewhere. It could be somewhere that we would never expect. Uh, It could be University of Iowa, for all I know. But there are people right now that are getting it handed to them by Ohio State that are going to eventually have had enough of it. And someone's going to either, with the current coaching staff in place or with one that they put in place, they're going to press the right buttons and they're going to end up being better for having dealt with Ryan Day in Ohio State. Now, just as sure as I tell you that, there are going to be a couple of other programs that get desperate 
and make wrong moves like the University of Tennessee did in the SEC in response to Nick Saban, and they'll head out into the wilderness for a decade. Like, that's going to happen to someone. Just don't know who it is quite yet. But let's talk about how great coaches, they pull this off. Great, good coaches can turn around a program. The great ones, the transcendent ones, the ones that'll be on the front of the history books from now until eternity, not only do they turn around your program, they also impact everyone else's program by default. Think about this. As I told you, we're going to talk to Urban Meyer a little bit later in the show. At least I'm going to show you a clip of our big interview coming with him tomorrow. But think about Urban Meyer. He's at Bowling Green. Then he goes to Utah for a cup of coffee. He catches the West on fire. Then Florida comes calling. He comes to Gainesville. And everyone I've told you, I remember, I told him in the interview that we did, I said everyone thought that you were going to come down here and you were going to get a taste of the SEC. But then the SEC got a taste of you. But think about the ripple effect when Urban Meyer got here, because they started winning. Didn't take long. They started winning. They had a fierce recruiting battle with Alabama for a kid named Tim Tebow from Nice High School in Florida. At the time, mispronounced nice by about 50% of the population. He lands Tebow, and what happens? As a result, what if Alabama were to have landed Tim Tebow? They didn't, okay? You got Mike Shula there without Tim Tebow, and it's not too long before Alabama has to make a move. Now, Alabama was feeling pressure from a multitude of different directions, but Alabama had a pretty darn good year in 05. Had they landed Tim Tebow, would that have kept the boat steady enough to where Mike Shula may not get fired? And Nick Saban, he's down with the Dolphins. Maybe he comes back to college, maybe he doesn't, but who's to say that he doesn't go elsewhere? That's one way Urban Meyer impacted things, but also Urban Meyer was impacted by Nick Saban coming to Alabama, if we're real, really being honest with it. And you look at the impact that Saban's had all over the SEC. Not only did Nick Saban turn Alabama around, Look at what Nick Saban did to the likes of Tennessee, where Phil Fulmer, a generation prior, had given them results that were good enough. All of a sudden, once Alabama's doing what they're doing under Saban, the pressure is put on Tennessee. Saban even beat Fulmer his first year. They lost to Louisiana Monroe his first year. They still managed to beat Tennessee in blowout fashion with like five kids suspended right before kickoff for, of all things, textbook violations. Don't mean that as a euphemism. Actual physical textbooks. That was deemed a violation. And so... You had that, but also think about this. We can ping pong back and forth all we want to. Urban Meyer, what did he do to Florida State? He comes in, they rattled off like five more in a row against Florida State, and all of a sudden, folks who were on the fence had decided they had enough with Bobby Bowden, and it's time to make our move. Jimbo Fisher, head coach in waiting, you're now the head coach. Three years later, they're a national champion. Would that have happened? I don't know if it would have happened had Urban Meyer not come. I know that he contributed to a lot of the pressure that was applied there, and you can go on, you can talk about Kevin Sumlin not being able to get over the Alabama hump. Jimbo Fisher again in the picture here. Texas A&M forks over 75 million guaranteed. They've got Jimbo Fisher now. Results to be determined. I think we can all agree that they're in a better place than they were with Kevin Sumlin there. Does that happen without Nick Saban in the SEC West? Don't know. I would lean more towards no than yes. So there was a brief hope in the Big Ten. You, you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. The day that you heard, let's take it back to Michigan. Let's take it to Penn State. The day that you guys heard the news Urban Meyer breaking on your phone, on the bottom of your TV screen. Urban Meyer set to retire immediately as head coach at Ohio State. What was your thought? You didn't think about Ryan Day. Half the folks in Columbus didn't think about Ryan Day. Folks inside the program did, but maybe the fan base didn't. But what did you think? You thought, and again, when you see this Urban Meyer interview, I'm going to throw this right at him. I told him, when you retired, folks thought they had Ohio State. 
Folks in Michigan thought this is our shot. It's a shame we couldn't beat him with him there, but hey, whatever, we'll take it. He's gone, it's our shot. And folks looked at their recruiting and they said, there's a wide open vacuum now, let's fill it with us. And as a result, everyone got this false sense of hope. But then what happened? Then some guy that hardcore college football fans and Columbus, Ohio, Ohio State Buckeye fans, you knew about Ryan Day, hardcore college football fans knew about him. 80 plus percent of casual fans never heard of him before. They elevate him. And so the casuals probably thought, Ryan, if I've never heard about him, there's no way that he's qualified to lead Ohio State. Yeah, he always was. Yeah, he was. I got Urban Meyer to go in depth on that too. And so here's what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is Meyer was dominant at Ohio State. Meyer, they, were, they were killing it in recruiting too. But there was this sense and as an outsider, I was, in, I was down south at the time, still kind of am relative to Ohio, but here's what I sensed. I sensed those people up there, they're getting kicked around a little bit by Urban Meyer, but hey, Ohio State gets upset on the field in bizarre fashion every now and then, Iowa, Purdue, and it's not like they're just running circles around everyone to the point where it doesn't ever look like you'll be able to catch them, and people know Urban Meyer's not coaching another 15 years there, so they're biding their time and we've got Harbaugh in place here. We've got James Franklin in place here. You've got steady programs, not bad. Michigan's not bad. Michigan's very good. Penn State's very good. And they're waiting to capitalize on the not if, but when Meyer steps down or whatever's gonna happen there. Then you have some rumors of scandal and everyone starts to, everyone starts to drool and everyone starts to sense this is gonna be our time. Never happened. Now, Ryan Day is gonna coach 100 years, it seems like, so now, there is no more, let's just wait Urban Meyer out. You did that. That's a dead end. In fact, that's a sledgehammer to the face. So now you got Ryan Day to deal with for who knows how long. You got this recruiting machine to deal with for who knows how long. And I'm telling you, the sport is not going to sit still. They're not just going to sit still at Michigan. They're not going to sit still at Penn State. They're going to do something. I think Michigan fans, and I've talked to a couple of them, are a little bit excited by this, but they hate it. They hate that it's happening, but they're excited at the pressure it's going to apply because there is a camp that believes Jim Harbaugh's plenty good enough. He runs our program the way that we want it run. There is a certain standard we want to keep here, and he meets that standard, and we're certainly not bad. We're not struggling to make a bowl. We're very, very solid. We're one of the 15 best programs in America right now, and we're doing it the Michigan way, and there are some folks who are fine with that. There are other folks, sizable portion of the Michigan fan base, who says, screw this, we want to win. And I think we can win the right way. It's not mutually exclusive. It's not just one or the other. And so there are a lot of folks who want action taken here, but you can't justify action when you're making New Year's Day bowls against Alabama. You don't fire a guy when he's doing that. But yet there are folks who want action taken up there, and you just wonder, you give it a couple more years, and if they can't get over that Ohio State hump. Meyer was 7-0 against Michigan. This guy was here for several of those games. It's It matters a whole lot to those folks. And at Penn State, you wonder, James Franklin, is he the guy? Is he not the guy? Let's just assume he's the guy. He's the head coach there. There's no hot water he's in. He's in demand for other jobs. They do a great, he and his representation do a great job of making sure his name is floated for every big job that comes open. It's very smart. I would do the same thing if I were him to just remind folks, hey, I'm valuable. I'm rare. Selena Gomez song. Don't you, don't you know how rare I am? And so James Franklin, I was telling Colin before the show, Franklin feels to me like the guy who could reinvent his program 
quicker and more seamlessly than Jim Harbaugh. I just think Michigan under Harbaugh is what it is. I know he just brought in Josh Gaddis, and it's too early to know with that experiment, but that's the biggest stretch that we've seen Harbaugh make. That's the biggest leap we've seen him try and make, and I credit him for it. James Franklin's the kind of guy who could snap his fingers and turn over his entire program. Like James Franklin seems to me like the kind of guy who's a lot more flexible and willing to adapt and do whatever it takes to match what they're doing at Ohio State. Point is, someone's gonna get it figured out up there. It's not gonna be Ohio State and just a bunch of also-rans. Someone's gonna get it figured out, someone else is gonna try and get it figured out and get lost in the process. It's fun to watch. That's the circle of life. Uh, there are some casualties along the way, but it will yield in time. Ohio State's dominance will yield a net positive for someone else, maybe multiple someones in the Big Ten and elsewhere. Figuring out who that is, that's the hard part. All right, let's move it on. Let's, um, story time. It is story time. All right, how well do you remember this would have been 2016? How well do you remember 2016? And very early, and by early, I mean the first couple of weeks of 2017. Before I tell you this story, let me tell you and briefly rehash, because we did this on the Late Kick Extra podcast. Someone asked me about um, a trip I took, and I ended up telling the story about the Alabama-Clemson game from the 2015 season, which was the first time that these teams met, and that was out in Glendale, Arizona, and I told you where I was at the time. Don't need to mention call letters. But where I was at the time, the sales department didn't manage to get coverage of a college football national championship game in the Deep South covered. Whatever. Not my job. As a result, I had credentials to the game, but we weren't being paid to go out there. I went out there anyway. I'm not going to miss that. I paid my own way, but I didn't fly into Phoenix because it cost an arm and a leg, probably a couple of arms and a couple of legs, actually. So I flew into San Diego, rented a car, drove across the desert. Some of the most fun I've ever had. Anyway... The following year, same two teams again. So let me set the stage for you. The place that I worked at the time I was down in Georgia, the, the station that I worked at, we were a little bit different. At the time, we, we were not a station that had two live newscasts. We had a 6 p.m. live newscast, and then we would have our 11 o'clock newscast pre-recorded. Since then, they've changed that. But at the time, that's the way it was. And after that 6 p.m. newscast, a lot of cases, it was like a frat house there. And my responsibilities as the sports anchor there were not typical sports anchor responsibilities because I also hosted a college football show. So I was just the face on air of the sports. And then I did my college football show, which meant I had a lot of downtime at the station. The chief meteorologist there at the time, who is now uh, working in Cleveland, Matt Wentz up there, you guys in Ohio probably know of him. Uh, we turned the studio into a frat house regularly. We would have ping pong tournaments in there. We would have folks from around the neighborhood just come into the news studio, all kinds of violations, but statute of limitations probably passed on that now. And so here comes Alabama Clemson part two in Tampa. And once again, we don't have the coverage sold. And so once again, we're credentialed. What are we to do? Well, we're sitting in the studio one night eating pizza watching Netflix on the weather monitor, which is kind of like these behind me right now. And we said, why don't we just go? He's never covered a game in his life. Why don't we just go? So we went. We got credentialed, and we went. We already had the credentials, so we just decided to go. And our news director, to his credit, tried to get us some funding to go down there. I think he paid for our gas and got us a hotel room. Uh, and that was out of some emergency fund that I didn't even know existed. So we go down there. And I want to tell you about this game. So this was the one in Tampa. This was Alabama Clemson Part 2. Think about this. 
I did some research just to make sure I was right. This Alabama team was so loaded. This Alabama team was insane. It's probably one of the best teams you'll ever see to not win a national championship. Their coaching staff, this is not that long ago, guys. Nick Saban's obviously the head coach. Lane Kiffin is your offensive coordinator who gets fired the week of the game. This is not A-Day. It's not the spring game. It's a national championship game. Lane Kiffin was fired. Jeremy Pruitt, current head coach at Tennessee, is the defensive coordinator on this team. Mario Cristobal, current head coach at Oregon, is the offensive line coach on this team. Billy Napier, current head coach at Louisiana, UL Lafayette, is the wide receivers coach. Mike Loxley is not even on the field. Mike Loxley is the head coach at Maryland right now. He was just an analyst. Steve Sarkeesian, who is their offensive coordinator now, former head coach, he was just an analyst who didn't know it, but he was about to be thrust into the offensive coordinator chair because Kiffin got fired. So you have all that Kiffin drama. That's like the week leading up to the game. And meanwhile, there's Clemson. Clemson was not this unstoppable rebel force in that season that we have come to know them as. Now, they paint the walls with everyone's blood in the regular season. Maybe one close call against NC State. But remember this year, for Clemson, they faced Auburn at home, and they won 19 to 13. They uh, sacked Jarrett Stidham 11 times that game. They faced Troy. They won 30 to 24. Troy almost upset them in Clemson. NC State took them to overtime. They beat NC State. They went to Florida State. This was a game I was on the field for. They went to Florida State, and they finally beat Florida State 37-34. That was a pretty charged atmosphere. And then they end up losing to Pitt 43 to 42. But then. They beat Virginia Tech in the ACC title game, and they have a month to get ready for Ohio State, and they crush Ohio State, 31 to nothing. And so this began that whole streak of Clemson peaking at the right time. Well, this is when they really started doing that. And so here we go. Clemson versus Alabama, crazy game, back and forth. Bo Scarborough breaks his leg in the middle of the game. I think Alabama had like six or seven straight possessions of three and out because they really looked dominant early on. Clemson ends up coming back. Jalen Hurts rips off a touchdown run with under two minutes to go, runs like right towards me. Got a really good shot of it that I don't know where that is now. And it looks like we just saw Alabama clinch back-to-back national championships. And then there goes Deshaun Watson. Boom, 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 down the field. You know the story. One second left. There's Hunter Renfro. Where's the defender? Well, he's probably laying on the ground. Uh, Who is that? Tony Brown, I think, on the ground. Um, So you know how that happened. I don't need to argue whether that was a pick play or not. It was a very, very incredible moment for Clemson. I'll get to Clemson in a second. Here's the post game. Here's what you don't see on TV. I have been around, obviously, a lot of big games. I've been at a lot of Alabama big games, uh, Georgia, all all these SEC teams, Clemson, um, Ohio State. So I've been around a lot of big games and seen teams lose. And in these settings, and I'm not necessarily a supporter of this, but I do it because I have to, they open the locker rooms, these college locker rooms. Pro locker rooms, open them all day long. I don't care. I've never thought college locker rooms should be open, period. Uh, Beat reporters will fight me on this, but I don't care. If they need to increase your availability for players outside the locker room, so be it. I've never been a believer in us being in a college locker room. But we're in there. And so the scene in the Alabama locker room, let me tell you, uh, folks do good enough to keep it together when they are on the field, including this man, Nick Saban, if you're watching. That, that team, those two teams, the 15 and 16 teams, Saban loved them. 
He had, he had more drama on his coaching staff than he did with his team. Loved those teams because they policed themselves. These were those teams with like the year before Ashawn Robinson and Jaron Reed. And this team, this was the one Jonathan Allen came back on. You had Minka Fitzpatrick on that team. Uh, Ronnie Harrison, just a loaded team that Clemson found a way to win against. And all those guys in that locker room, tears all over the place. Coaching staff, same way. I don't think I've ever seen, I've been in locker rooms after national championships, never in my life have I seen a group as collectively distraught as Alabama was. Um, just some guys who you would never see in a million years like that in public. This is one of the reasons why I'm a believer media has no place in a locker room after a game. But we were in there. I didn't shoot it. I don't name names. I don't, I don't do all that. But I'm just telling you, it was a surreal scene. So then I jet it down the tunnel and I go over to Clemson. And because the losers go do their press availability first. The team that loses does their press avails while the winning team's out on the field and confetti's raining down on them. So obviously they're way behind. So I go down there as Dabo and the players are slowly coming off the field. Here's what struck me the most about Clemson. So uh, the Tigers are coming off the field bit by bit. It was so easy to tell who had been with that organization for 10 years plus and who had just been hired in the last few years maybe. The folks who had been hired recently, the folks who were recent arrivals there, they were jubilant, man. They were jumping up and down. The folks who had paid their dues and been there a long time, they had been there when you know they were getting smoked 70 to 31 or whatever it was in the Orange Bowl, when they couldn't catch a break and beat Florida State to save their lives, when people questioned who Dabo Swinney is, much less can he get the job done. Those folks were in tears and just kind of hugging each other and sobbing amongst themselves, tears of joy, obviously, but those folks, it meant something totally different to them than it did the folks, including the players in some cases. A lot of those players had not been around for that, but those staffers, that's what stands out to me the most, those Clemson staffers, administrative types, uh, SID and departments and stuff like that, those folks, man, it meant the world to them. But it wasn't until that moment that they finally shook that whole Clemsoning tag because they had lost to Bama the year before. Uh, they lost to Pitt in this year and looked for all the world like they were going to get close but not get it done again. And then Dabo Swinney got it done. And now they changed the entire game. And now there it is. Lo and behold, instead of talking about how that team will ever get over the hump, now all of a sudden they're the standard bearer or at the very least a 1A, 1B, whatever you want to call them in the sport. And now it's, it's gone from will they ever get over the hump to will anyone ever catch them in the ACC? We were just talking about Ohio State earlier. Sport's not going to sit still forever for Clemson. The ACC's not going to sit still forever for Clemson. However, it's going to take a monumental task for anybody to mount a challenge over there. And who is it? it you always think, well, it's got to be Miami. If it's not going to be Miami, it's got to be Florida State. Well, for my money, North Carolina looks like they're doing the best job of closing the gap right now. And by gap, I mean Grand Canyon. But you understand what I'm saying. Maybe Mike Norvell is that guy. Maybe Manny Diaz is that guy. Maybe Fuente is that guy. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. 
So the other day, uh, what was our last show, Colin? Our last show was Thursday. On Thursday, I did something that I should have known better than to do. I did a segment on the show where I talked about how star ratings do matter. Context briefly for those of you who missed it. So what happened was the night of the NFL draft, uh, why not? Fox Sports College Football tweets out this graphic where they're showing you by high school star rating how many kids were taken in the NFL draft relative to what they were rated coming out of high school. And there were, and I, I'm, don't quote me on this, but I believe this is right. There were, according to their graphic, 15 kids taken in the NFL draft who were former five-star recruits, and there were 77 kids taken in the draft who were former four-star recruits, which leads them to say, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what you're rated in high school, which, of course, is a garbage take, and it's, I don't even blame Fox Sports College Football because a vast majority of their on-air talent dismissed the tweet from their own organization, Joel Klatt and the like, pretty quickly. They knew it was a trash take. Probably some high school intern that was given the keys to the Twitter account for the night. Anyway, so I came on the show, and I said, there is this misconception that, oh, if... If you're a three-star, you could still play in the NFL. Of course you can. If you're a no-star, you can play in the NFL. It's about data and percentages. There's a big gap between it's impossible to be drafted as a former three-star versus, well, you're just as likely to be drafted as a former three-star as you are as a former five-star. Of course, that's not true. This industry, the recruiting industry, has evolved so much over the years. I want you to pay close attention. In just a second, I'm going to have Colin play you something. Back in the day... Let's say 20 years ago, year 2000, National Signing Day, coaches used to routinely take shots at this industry. And they used to routinely take shots at recruiting rankings, star ratings. You notice they don't do that a whole lot anymore? They, there may be one here and there, but you notice the, the higher level head coaches, they don't do it anymore. And when they do reference star ratings, what they're doing is what I did on the show the other night. And they're referring to star ratings in the context of a star rating isn't everything that goes into making a great player. But see, I know everyone on the rankings council here at 24-7 Sports. Guess what? None of them would suggest anything otherwise. They know good and well what we have here is we have, based on the data available, based on the measurables available, the film available, the camp settings and performances available, you've got a best guess at what a kid's going to be at the college level. That's all it is. What it's not, as I said the other night, and I knew it would be ignored by the all-caps crew that comes into the comment section, what it's not is a psychological evaluation. What it's not is a predictor of whether you'll suffer catastrophic injury at the next level. It's not how well you'll transition socially from high school to college. Basically, there are a bunch of things, even if you're the most talented player in the history of high school, that could trip you up and cause you to not pan out at the college level that has nothing to do with your star rating. So understanding what a recruiting ranking is and what it isn't was the context the other night that was missed because as soon as I posted the video, again, in the all caps, you're, Y-O-U-R, an idiot, uh, that crew comes in and says, oh, star ratings don't matter. Let me give you this anecdotal example from a player in 2016 who was a three-star that went on to be an All-American. That's great, guys. We're talking about uh, percentages and data. We're not talking about outliers. You're in the exception. We're talking rule here. And the rule is our Bud Elliott did a phenomenal feature where, again, he didn't include his emotion. There was no opinion. There were no feelings. It was just raw data. And you know what the data said? 
your odds of being a first-round draft selection in the 2020 NFL Draft if you were a former five-star rated recruit was one in five. Your odds as a four-star were something like one in 20-ish. Three-star was like one in 100-something. So exponentially, the numbers went down. Didn't say it's impossible. It just said, yes, star ratings very much do matter. But I said, you know what? So I was on the phone with Urban Meyer the next day. I don't believe in name dropping, obviously. But I was on the phone with Urban Meyer the next day. I know for a fact Urban Meyer used to check this stuff all the time. I know it. So I say, you want to do an interview tomorrow? He says, yeah, I'll do one. So we got him on. And I asked him, amongst a number of other things that you're going to see in the full interview when we debut it tomorrow, I s actually, you don't need to know what I said because I think with the video, Colin, cut, you'll see the question I ask. I want you to notice what Urban Meyer says here and what he doesn't say, and then we'll talk about it on the back end. Roll it, Colin. I've been interested in, in my line of work, I work at 24-7 Sports. I'm not on the Recruiting Rankings Council, but yet I observe the process and how meticulous they try and be and how thorough they try and be. And you'll get coaches on the record and they'll tell you, I don't pay attention to recruiting rankings whatsoever. But then I'll talk to them off the record. I'll hear them off the record. And they're perfectly aware of where they're rated. They're perfectly aware of how many stars their signees have. I'm certainly not asking you if you use that in lieu of your own evaluations, but from Maybe a curiosity standpoint, when you were a coach, Ohio State, Florida, Utah, et cetera, Bowling Green, were you aware of where your players were rated and were you kind of aware of how that recruiting ranking hierarchy was standing? I don't want to speak for other coaches, but if they're telling you they're not paying attention, I would say they're probably not telling the truth. You know, I, of course, now I would always study that. As a matter of fact, every day, and I went to your site, 247 Sport, and it said class rankings, and I would hit that. And I always knew exactly who the rival was recruiting and teams we were going to play. And, of course, it's not exact science. But you know what? You guys do a pretty good job. Is it exact? No, of course not. Joe Burrow wasn't highly ranked. And uh, I'm trying to think who else. Mike Thomas and, um, you know, some of these other players that became Darren Lee. I'm not sure he was ranked. So, of course not. But, no, I think uh, recruiting has become big-time business. The fact that your fan base follows it. And the fact is you're keeping score. As I've always said many, many times, as long as you're keeping score, we're going to go try to win this thing. And we've tried to win recruiting, but you know, did we ever make a decision because you had a guy ranked higher than, or a service had a guy ranked higher than us? No. And, and I'd be shocked if a coach said, we're going to take him because it will enhance our standings. However, I'll tell you this, I probably, over the years, I've found a couple dozen players because I wasn't aware of them until I sit, checked the recruiting sites. And I was like, wait a minute, who's this guy? And we jump in the middle of it, and, and sometimes we got him. And it was all because we didn't know, you know, just because one fell through the cracks somewhere, and we took a swing out. You guys heard that, right? Do visited the site every day. Anyway, get the marketing out of the way. So what did he not say? What he didn't say is, oh, we solely relied on that. Of course not. That would be asinine. And even if he did, first off, he wouldn't be successful if that's all he did. Secondly, if he ever did it, I wouldn't expect him to admit it. But here's what he did say. He's very aware of it. He was constantly looking at it and perusing it because of two, th really a bunch of things. But let me give you two things that people in this industry have known for a while. I haven't even been in this industry that long, but I've been outside of it observing it, and even I've known it, because people inside coaching circles talk about it. They don't get to talk to players legally nearly as much as people in our line of work do. 
Therefore, it greatly behooves them to have a nice relationship with people in our line of work. Secondly, because in some cases, Barton Simmons has more access and more communication with a kid, or Steve Wolfong has more communication with a kid than a head coach does, you wanna know where that head coach goes? Where would you go? What I'd do is I'd pull up that Wolfong recruiting whip around that he and I are about to record tomorrow morning and we'll release uh, Tuesday, and I'd be checking that out. And I'd be seeing what the latest scoop is here and there. There's also a competition factor. You can't tout the fact that you finished top five in recruiting last year on all your promotional graphics and then say you don't care about recruiting rankings. That's pretty hypocritical. But uh, it was a really good interview with him. We're going to release the full thing tomorrow morning at 9 Eastern, 8 a.m. Central. He was really good. It took like 20, 25 minutes with us. Um, it, was, it was really, really good. So um, some of the other things, by the way, because I saw a couple of people who saw the tweet earlier, they were asking. I got him to go deep about Ryan Day, about Ohio State's recruiting class right now. Um, talked about some mistakes that he made at Florida. Talked about what he didn't like when he left Florida, what he saw Will Muschamp and that staff doing. Uh, he was very open, very candid about that. Talked about the difference in climbing versus sustaining when you're at the top. One of the hardest things in the world and one of the hardest things in college football to do and lessons he learned about that. So he gave us a whole lot of good stuff. So that'll be tomorrow morning. But I just wanted you to listen as folks will tell you, stuff doesn't matter. You got one of the most successful head coaches there of all time say, I checked it out every morning. But you know, what's good enough for Urban Meyer is not necessarily always good enough for those in the YouTube comment section. Let's get to questions tonight. <laughs> this is the question. We might as well just loop it. It's like a replay. A uh, hundred of you, I didn't even single out one, because like a hundred of you asked, thoughts on Tennessee's latest commitment? Am I talking about the one from Thursday? Nope. Am I talking about the one from last Sunday? Nope. Got two more today, May 3rd. Yeah, got two more of them today. Cody Brown's a four-star running back out of Georgia. Guys, if you're going to commit to Tennessee, you better hurry up because they're filling up pretty quick. So they got a four-star running back out of Georgia, got a three-star defensive back, Deshaun Rucker out of Florida. And I want to talk about the running back just for a second, Cody Brown. You notice um, this is a kid out of Georgia, six foot, 225 pounds. The Evans kid, the Juco running back, who was out of South Carolina, they got the other day, 225 pounds. Um, these guys don't exactly fit the description of what you would call a scat back. I think it's pretty obvious what kind of team Jeremy Pruitt's trying to build. And I don't necessarily know that you have to have any futuristic blueprint to understand what they're trying to do. I think they believe, and I've believed this about Tennessee. I've talked about this for a couple of years now. They don't need to be some special preparation. They don't need to do what maybe Mike Leach at Mississippi State will have to do. Tennessee can get the best of the best. I, there was this, I don't know where this came from, but people have thought just because they've been down for a while, they've lost the ability to recruit and have an elite roster. They never lost that. Like, what are you talking about? Had I taken Nick Saban and put him in Knoxville, had I taken Dabo Swinney and done it, Ryan Day, Lincoln Riley, if Mario Cristobal's at Tennessee and Jeremy Pruitt's doing it right now, they'll have an elite roster. What was keeping them from having an elite roster was having an elite head coach and elite coaching staff. I think that's plain as day. You can get into Carolinas and Georgia, South Florida, Alabama, Texas, Tennessee, Ohio. They can go wherever they want to for kids. They got a lot to sell. Believe me, the Tennessee brand still sells. Now, you weren't going to be able to suck water through a garden hose for another decade and still sell anything because at that point, folks who remember you winning a national championship are starting to qualify for retirement. But right now, 
Tennessee's got a lot going for them. And most importantly, they kicked a snowball down the hill a little bit in recruiting. And now they've got that fabled momentum that everyone wants. Well, they've actually got it. So hats off to Jeremy Pruitt. I don't think it's going to stop. You're learning the names on that recruiting staff right now that a lot of folks in Knoxville have already been excited about. Now you're learning those names. I don't think you'll forget them anytime soon. Quentin on Twitter. I'm going to read it right off the screen here. Uh, you, he's talking about me, you talk about how there's a lot of teams that think they're fully invested, but they aren't. How does a school become fully invested when they aren't hitting all the tens? And he's talking about checking all the boxes, peaking all the meters, as we like to say. What are the steps that Missouri or Vanderbilt could take is what I'm asking. These are interesting questions. If we're realistic, there is no step that Vanderbilt football is going to take to match Alabama football, Georgia football, etc., they can do what James, like James Franklin clicked as many tens at, ten, at Vanderbilt rather as you probably can. And as a result, he got a big time job. That's just the state of affairs at Vanderbilt. They don't care about football enough to invest to the degree that you have to. If I'm telling you there are some high school facilities better than the facilities they have at Vanderbilt right now. That's not out of my mouth. That's out of the mouth of a lot of people who have been there and a lot of coaches who have gone through there. So... Uh, Missouri, a little bit different story. And here's what Missouri has to do. Missouri has to understand what Columbia, Missouri means geographically. And that means a whole lot harder time getting into Georgia than the University of Georgia has getting in there. Or maybe a border state like Auburn or Alabama, Tennessee, etc. So I don't, as much as I believe Tennessee can do it any way they want to. They can, Tennessee can recruit any kind of roster they want to. Missouri can't. That doesn't mean Missouri can't win, or it doesn't mean they can't win. It means they have to win in special preparation ways. They have to construct themselves in a manner that they are unique unto what Alabama does, Auburn does, A&M does, Georgia does. And by that, I mean make themselves a circle. On that helmet grid schedule that you print out every year, you need to look at Missouri. If they're fully invested now, Missouri would look to you in 2020 like Oregon used to look on a Pac-12 schedule in 2010. When you play Oregon, you knew under Chip Kelly, you were going to face a brand of football totally unique to anything else you saw all year. That's what Missouri has to be to give themselves a shot to contend in the SEC when you have as many Goliaths as you do in this conference right now. Shelby asked a question. You know what, Shelby? Let me circle that. I'm going to get to that one on Thursday night because I actually have a couple of elements that I want Colin to use on that. I guess what I'm telling you is we're done. Now remember, uh, not quite done, got one more housekeeping note. Remember, if you tuned in late, we are doing the Late Kick Extra podcast. I'm recording it every Tuesday, and I'm taking as many of your comments as possible, and I'm answering as many questions on there as possible. We had a great show, had really good feedback, good traffic on it, Tani tells me, uh, with our first one, is our first venture. Uh, last Wednesday, so go listen to that if you haven't already. Give us a five-star review and write a review for us. But right below the YouTube video, whether you're listening live now or you're uh, watching the replay, there is a pinned comment from me or the 24-7 Sports account. That is where to post your questions for the podcast. You can also tweet them at me, at LateKickJosh. You can email them to me, joshpate706 at gmail.com. So we'll get to that on uh, Wednesday. That'll be when that gets released. We'll be right back with you live again Thursday. As for now, uh, after that derecho moved through earlier today, look that up, weather nerds. We're finally uh, going to be able to drive home and hopefully have power here in Nashville. It's been a great weather year so far in Nashville. Phenomenal. Postcard. So uh, we appreciate you joining us tonight. We'll be back here Thursday night. Podcast drops uh, tomorrow morning. 
Wednesday morning and Friday morning. That's our full schedule. Have a great night. Enjoy the Bulls documentary. you got about 20 or so odd minutes until that airs, and we are out of here. We will see you Thursday night. Take care.